welcome to How to Grow a Pod, the podcast about podcasting from the book How to Start and Grow a Successful Podcast by me, Jilly Smith. This is where you'll find the almost unedited interviews by the pioneers of podcasting, the hobbyists and the pros who feature in the book. And this week I'm with folk expert John Wilkes of the Old Songs podcast on hobby podcasting, niche communities and meeting your heroes. He told me how it helps to know his way around a microphone. Going back some time, going back about 10 years ago, I was the editor of Time Out magazine in the Middle East. And also I, I went and did some, some time working in Tokyo as well. So journalism and interviewing people was a huge part of what I did and what I loved doing. And the other side of what I loved doing was, was music. I love playing music. Um, in about 2016, something sort of popped up in the back of my head, and that was the fact that my grandparents, somebody told me, one of my, one of my relatives, my uncle, told me that my grandparents had met at this place called Cecil Sharp House, which is in Camden in North London. And they'd met there, and um, this is, you know, going back into the, the early 40s, late 30s, and they'd met there and they'd courted, as they used to say, um, going to Cayley's. And Cecil Sharp House is a place that is largely uh, related to traditional folk music. In fact, it's known as the headquarters uh, of the English Folk Dance and Song Society, or EFTAS, as it's known. So my grandparents had met and sort of done their kind of courting there, and they'd... Uh, They'd gone to Cayley's and they'd loved dancing. My grandfather, it turned out, was a Morris dancer. And uh, my grandmother was a was a, a musician, occasional musician. And um, these things sort of, I suppose, as I was in my late 30s myself, and I suppose getting towards that point where, um, where you start perhaps questioning where you come from a little bit more, um, it really fascinated me that, that there was this kind of um, linked to traditions and traditional music in my family that I had never known about before. And I suppose that also coincided with the fact that uh, in that sort of search for ha- perhaps looking to sort of where I came from and that kind of thing, I was I was becoming more interested in um, what that meant from a sort of larger perspective, not just me, but sort of, you know, the, the past of my own society and my own culture. Having lived and travelled abroad a lot, I was kind of very conscious of certainly in Japan you sort of of see traditions that are very you know people celebrate traditions uh, on a much more regular scale and the link to ancestry and that kind of thing is a lot stronger than perhaps it is here so all of these kind of things combined and I started doing a blog originally in which I thought well I'll teach myself about traditions and traditional music but I'll do it using my journalist hat and I'll go and I will interview people, uh, if I can, try to interview sort of well-known folk musicians and see if they can teach me. And in the process of writing about what they're teaching me, perhaps teach other people. Uh, and it kind of went very well. That blog sort of seemed to take off quite well. Um, and a lot, a lot of people have written to me since and said that they got into traditional music because they'd read that blog. For a little time, I stopped doing the blog, um, and when it when I decided to bring it back again, I thought it's probably better to do it as a podcast, seeing as well. One thing being that you know a lot of people are listening to podcasts a lot more than than um, uh, than perhaps in the past. Um, these conversations are, are best heard rather than read. I started to think, and so I re- redid it uh, under the guise of the Old Songs podcast, in which I look at. In each episode, I look at one song, ostensibly look at one song, 
one traditional song, where it comes from, where it was found, who would have sung it originally, what it would have meant to that community originally, um, who has sung it since, all those kind of things. And I look at that song in the company of a well-known or or prominent professional folk singer or traditional folk singer. Um, and, and also look at the stuff that goes around it. So, for example, we've just done an episode on a song called Hall and Toe, which is a, a song that's traditionally sung in Cornwall on May the 8th to welcome in the summer, uh, as the lyrics go. Welcome in the summer, welcome in the May. Um, and, and it's very, very heavily connected with, with May Day traditions. And so by talking about that song, naturally you start going off and thinking about... Uh, what the what it means, what May means to this country, what people in the past would have done, uh, what people in the past would have done on on the May morning and that kind of thing. So it started off as a passion project, a personal project about you and your sense of belonging and who you are. Yeah. And you kind of bumped into a real community project. There are lots of people interested in English folk music. And as it turns out, thousands of people who also are affiliated or interested in Cecil Sharp House, which is, as you say, the home of English folk music. Um, bringing those two together must have given you that wonderful sort of access to a lot of listeners. How, how did you, is that true? And if so, how did, how did you get them? How did you find them? Well, hmm, that's, I mean, that's an interesting question. Is, does it have a lot of listeners, first, first and foremost? I, I, I think, as you said, as you pointed out right at the beginning, this is a niche thing. This, you know, traditional music, uh, traditional folk music is 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 a wonderful, wonderful thing. And, and I, I find a lot of people, I meet a lot of people who, when they come to it, they really get the bug. It's something that you can really, really get into and really, really discover. Uh, and, and it's a bottomless pit. You know, there are something like 250,000 songs yeah. uh, at Cecil Sharp House alone uh, in, in various states of sort of archive... Archiveness, is that a word? Um, so... Yeah, so it's, it's it's a huge area to explore, and it's a, it does become a huge passion and project. Are there are there many people who are willing to listen to a podcast about it? Yes, I think there are, and you know we've had episodes that have had you know decent listens, and I, I think the way that I've found my way to that audience, it's partly through um, a sense of authenticity. I'm not doing it for you know I'm not doing it to become podcast famous or anything like that. I'm doing it because it's gen genuinely something I'm interested in. Um, and it's something that I'm really interested in offering to other people. I think that's a really key part. It, there's, there's an element of helpfulness about it in terms of, you know, I, I think people ought to hear it. I think people ought to know about this music. I think it's, I think if they do, they, that they're going on a wonderful journey. So that's where the passion comes from. And I suppose, Finding an audience becomes becomes a bit easier if you can link in people who are well-known for it. So if I can go interview somebody like Jim Murray, who is uh, a well-known traditional musician, then he brings with him a large audience. Um, and so, and you would then rely on him to retweet your episode with him or yeah, something like and, that? Yeah, and, and to be honest, I mean, I can't be completely disingenuous. The, um when I first started thinking of doing this podcast, it was as a, it was it was partly prompted by a couple of people who have been on the podcast. So one was a chap called Nick Hart, and the other was this chap that I mentioned, Jim Murray. 
uh, both of whom are phenomenally good traditional musicians. Um, you know, relatively young guys who who are out on the circuit, who are playing a lot anyway, and who I had befriended along the way. Um, and they've become good friends of mine and people that are, you know, that I chat to on a regular basis. And they were both sort of saying, you should really get back to doing some of the journalist side of stuff. It was really refreshing to have somebody who's got a bit of a background in journal- journalism taking a strong interest in, in traditional music and, and giving it, giving it, you know, a... Uh, giving it that that kind of uh, level of professionalism that goes with that if you if you if you've got a journalistic background and so mm-hmm. they were very kind of keen for me to do it and so I said well I'll do something I'll come up with an idea for this um, and I'll do something but as long as you guys get involved with it as well so Nick has been on Nick Hart has been on it twice now uh, Jim Murray has been on it twice now uh, through people like that then I've got bigger names like Billy Bragg has been on it now Um you know, we've we've got it's it's growing in that sense, and all of those people bring their own audience. Yeah, I mean, do, do you even consider talking about figures? Does it mean anything to you? Could, how do you feel I, about telling me how many listeners you get? I don't feel bad. I, I, you know, the the podcast is relatively young, so it doesn't have vast figures. It has, you know, I think, I think we get, I think we get about sort of. 300 per episode at the moment Mm -hmm. but considering that the considering that the podcast is only what four months old Mm -hmm. i think it's growing quite quickly Mm -hmm. um it's it's you know yeah i think i think it's a good start um but what does that mean to you what are those 300 because to i mean i suppose a a niche magazine Mm. a magazine about the old songs if they were to get 300 readers really engaged readers that would be worth something wouldn't it well yeah i mean i suppose the the question also there's a context to the question that's based on the fact that my background and my job my my you know my day-to-day job is largely in digital media so i'm very conscious of that stuff anyway so i know very Mm. well that um you know, uh, I, I I'm very I'm very kind of conscious of the fact that I'm not I'm not too bothered by clicks. I'm very interested in engagement, and as, as as you've just hinted at there, so I'm I'm more in, interested perhaps in the fact that you know something like thirty percent of of listeners will get right to the very end of the podcast, which may not sound huge to a lot of people, but I think for a, a podcast that's a, you know sometimes an hour and twenty minutes long, I think that's a pretty good starting point. Uh, and mm. it's a good point to yeah. learn from. Um, so, so yeah. it's things like that that's important to me. But uh, I suppose it's important to me only in as much as that's what I know about from a from a professional level. I'm much more interested in um, in having a good chat. Really, I mean that's that's the thing. And I, and I think if if I was if I was particularly bothered by engagement levels, and if I was particularly you know to, to the level that it was effective affecting what I was doing. Then the, I feel like the, the podcast would lose something because I would I would start analysing it in far too much detail and I'd start thinking, well, this has to go here and this has to fall here and this has to fall here and maybe there is an element of that, you know, that sort of content planning and that sort of thing that, that ought to come into it at some stage. But for this project, because it's not a work project or anything like that, it's much more about getting the stories told for me. You know, I want to I want those mm. people to be able to come onto the podcast and not feel restricted by how how things are supposed to be done i want them just to be able to come on and really just enthuse about the music and the songs in the way that they want to do it 
Yeah. Is there a bite point, though, where you have to have enough listeners to make it worth your while? If you weren't getting any listeners, would it would there be any point in doing it? Uh, ooh, it's a really interesting, an interesting question. I mean, I think I think I would be disheartened. I would be disheartened. But again, it comes back to the fact that I do it as a prof- I don't do this podcast to make money myself, but I do create content as a profession. So I suppose if there was nobody listening, then I would perhaps be a bit dis- disheartened because I'm. <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, but I'm slightly used to creating stuff that people listen to or look at or do, do that kind of thing. So there would be an element of me that would think, what's the point? But um, fortunately, I'm not at that point. <laughs> but presumably, you'd know that it wasn't working. You know, you've got something fascinating as a subject. And if people are not listening to a fascinating subject, then there's something wrong with the delivery of it. So it would have to be, you'd have to look back at how you were actually delivering that. How could you possibly make, be making something so boring that people weren't actually listening to it? Yeah, I think that's true. I think I probably, yeah. I think I probably would be doing that. I mean, I, I think... <sighs> I mean, podcasting is is the great leveler in some ways. It reminds me of, I mean, I'm I'm not old enough to remember this, but I've certainly read a lot about it. But it reminds me of what I've read about the sort of punk era, where you know, whereby record companies like Rough Trade and those kind of people would would spend a lot, you know, a lot of their time putting out pamphlets, putting out you know, sort of um, uh, fanzines and that kind of thing. And I do remember, I do remember going to concerts, you know, indie concerts when I was. In, in the early '90s, when I was in my teens, and 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 sort of being and buying fanzines from people in the queue and that kind of thing, fanzines were a great leveler because anybody could do it if you had access to a photocopier and you had enough of an interest and you had enough information to put into a fanzine, then you could make one. And I yeah. think the podcast is a natural, uh, a natural ancestor to that, a natural development from that. Yeah. Um, so if anybody who Anybody can put one together, but I think anybody can make one, but that doesn't automatically make, mean that it's going to be a good thing. I think first, first and foremost, you do have to have a subject that you really know something about or at least access to people who are willing to talk to you about a subject that they're really uh, that they know something about. And yeah. B, you do have to be you do have to have some experience of doing it. I mean, I, I find it quite interesting. You know, I I have a lot of experience of interviewing people through work. You know, I've interviewed countless sort of uh, musicians, film stars, all of these kind of people, and that's something that I spent many years developing the experience to be able to do. To a point that you know, um, I'm not starstruck by people. I know how to get the best out of people in a in a in an interview situation. Um, you know, I know when when to sit back. I know when to step forward and try to sort of nudge the conversation on. And I don't think that's something that naturally everybody has. Like, I think a good podcast, therefore, involves a mixture of a bit of experience, bit of know-how, uh, and, and a real passion for the subject and knowledge about the subject that you're talking about. If BBC Sounds came to you and said, we'd love to buy up the old songs, how would you feel? Um, <laughs> uh, I... I'll be honest. I I haven't really thought about it that much, uh, that much because somebody did mention to me that that BBC somebody at the BBC had been listening to it and was interested in it, um, and I guess that I'm uh, long enough in the tooth and been around the block enough to know that those things are only interesting to think about really once they actually once they actually turn up. 
Um, but if somebody was wanting to pay me to create something or to, to do something like that, then it certainly, I, I wouldn't turn my nose up at it. I mean, f first and foremost, the most important thing about, uh, in that imaginary scenario would be that you would manage to get the subject out to a wider group of people. Um, you would also be that the authority on old songs, on folk music, on the radio, which which has a value of its own. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what that value is, but it's uh, uh, and and I always find myself a little bit uncomfortable when people talk about me as having any expertise in this because I'm entirely self-taught. Although that's an that's quite a big thing in traditional music anyway, because it is a ultimately a, a, comes from an amateur background anyhow. But there are people who know far far more about this stuff than I do. Um, and that's why I invite them onto the podcast, I suppose. Uh, but but I but I, I think it would be a good way to to uh, to further to further people's knowledge of it. And and I think you know I do I have built up a reputation enough that people perhaps within the traditional world know that I can be trusted with with talking about it. Now, one of the most important things about your podcast is that it has music which means that you have to go to Mixcloud mm. um, how limiting is it that podcasting the kind of podcasting that I do that most of us do you just can't have music that is licensed to somebody else now there is a reason to say yes to someone like BBC Sounds because they would take care of the licensing issues um, it's it, it's massively frustrating, and, and I'll be honest, I didn't do my homework when I started doing this. Um, I started out by um, by trying to create something that... Uh, initially, I thought, I'll do it on Patreon, uh, and I'll put it out there. I, I, I set it up on Patreon. I announced that I was doing it. Within about an hour, I'd had about £80 worth of Patreon <laughs> uh, pledges put towards it. And then I had to cancel it because I realised that I wasn't going to be able to licence it properly and what good is a music podcast without having music in it. Um, an interesting side, side point to that was when I realised that was what was that was the problem, I suggested to my, my first couple of interviewees that they might like to sing an, un an unaccompanied version of the song, which is actually, you know, traditionally, that's how you would have heard the songs. Traditional music would have been almost entirely uh, unaccompanied possibly a fiddle or a melodeon or something there but certainly not the sort of guitar thing that everybody thinks of now and um and so the initial those initial recordings had somebody providing a couple of unaccompanied songs singing um that they had no problems with me putting out there on whatever platform and that has since become a kind of well a sort of tradition of its own within that podcast it's something that we end every podcast on now that the singer does an unaccompanied version of it but the problem and was, that's was that, okay in terms of permission well those people are absolutely fine with doing it right so that all they're doing is singing down singing that singing into my my microphone thing and as long as they say i can put it out and i can put it out they're singing a song that doesn't have a, a license attached to it. I'm just thinking that people who want to use music, they they would probably want to use modern music, which if sung. So so take take Blur because Blur did actually record one of the Wassail songs that, yeah. that, that which is how we found each other in the first place. Say Blur yeah. 
uh, were to, to, to you was somebody was to sing a blur song, it is still licensed to blur, isn't it? Whether or not they sing a cappella um, or they play the song out. It, it depends very much on what blur have done with that in terms of the licensing. But to I mean the, to to tidy up the the I suppose the misunderstanding for your listeners here, traditional music. Um, is not is not copyrighted. You know, if if you're going to sing a song like I don't know, um, let's take a something like um, uh, the Wassailing Song, as you've just mentioned. The Wassailing Song mm-hmm. is a song that that must date back sort of four or five hundred years potentially. Um, it comes from a very specific area of the country. We know the specific area of the country it comes from. But by definition of it being a traditional song, and this is probably the difference, the definition. Uh, between what folk music is and what traditional music is, traditional folk music, nobody knows who wrote it. It's anonymous. The song has sort of developed um, of its own accord, in a, almost like a sort of survival of the fittest sense. You know, people have sung it in fields, in pubs for years and years, and it's been chipped away and it's been perfected by time, not by a specific person. And so therefore there is nothing to copyright. Nobody can hold that copyright. Um, I think one of the most famous instances uh, that you'll ever come across that sort of demonstrates the difficulty that, um, or, or, or sorry, that demonstrates the um, the conviction with which uh, traditional singers hold that notion is the song Scarborough Fair, which um, Simon and Garfunkel made very famous in the 60s. They got that song, Paul Simon took that arrangement and that song from Martin Carthy, uh, Martin Carthy being um, one of the the most important traditional singers in this country or any country really who that sings in in, in English, um, and Martin Carthy had had taken that song from the archives. He'd he'd made his own arrangement of it, uh, and he'd he'd arranged it into a way so that people could uh, potentially sing it again. But as far as Martin Carthy was was concerned, he was just furthering the the, the life of a song. He was. You know, supporting the tradition. It wasn't his song. This was just his version of it. Paul Simon took Martin Carthy's version and copyrighted it as his own, and made millions off Scarborough Fair. Martin Carthy's biggest gripe, I think, is not necessarily that he didn't have any money out of that. It's more that Paul Simon had the audacity to pretend that that song was something he'd written, which he clearly hadn't. It was a traditional song. So traditional songs sit outside copyright in that sense. So to bring it back to what we're talking about here, you um, you can you can use traditional songs in that sense. The the the, the difficulty that comes when you're talking about licensing on things like uh, Spotify and that kind of thing is that uh, people hold copyright for arrangements that they've done. So if I was to take um, uh, I don't know. Again, let's go back to the Wassailing song. If I was to take the Wassailing song, which was recorded, uh, the version that we're talking about here was a version that was recorded by Blur. The copyright is for the arrangement, and the people. Uh, there's also a copyright that's related to um, the record company. The you know the, the, there are licenses there that are held by the record company, and that's where you start falling down with the likes of Spotify. Um, and the likes of most podcasting places. The only place that I found that would allow us to do that was Mixcloud, who pay, as I understand, a form of radio license, which means that as long as that podcast is 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 held on Mixcloud and Mixcloud alone, uh, then Mixcloud will cover those licenses and pay those royalties. 
That's right. But doesn't that have some kind of limitations? I mean, I've done a, a podcast series before called The Right Songs, uh, mm. which took people through their five songs that provided the soundtrack of their book that they were writing. So I was talking mm. to authors about what might have been the soundtrack to the, the writing process of their book. But I could only do it on uh, Radio Reverb, but then listen again, i.e. podcast on Mixcloud because of those licensing rules. I found that I could tweet it, I could share it, I could write about it, we could do everything that I normally do, but it didn't go to Spotify and it didn't go th to Apple, didn't go yep, to iTunes. Yep. Therefore, it w did not exist. Hugely I mean, how do you, right? you... Yeah, I mean, that's your story too, yeah? Absolutely. And, it, and it's massively frustrating because, again... Um, I, I wanted to, to create this podcast because I wanted to further the life of those songs, and by you know, and, and the way to do that is to get more people to hear them and get more people to enjoy them. And so, if you're limited by platform, I mean, I think I think I put the first one, I put like a, a trailer out, and I put a um, an advert out. Uh, sorry, I put a trailer out, and I put the first episode out on Spotify, um, and it got a lot of listeners a lot of people who've since found me and said, why can't we find the rest of it? So, yes, hugely frustrating. Um, but at the same time, the, the, the thing that I have to weigh up there is, well, you could you could make the, the old songs podcast without songs, but what would be the point of that? It's just two people yeah. talking about music that nobody can listen yeah. to and occasionally saying, yeah. stop your podcast and go and find this song. And, and I just think that's a, a, it's not a great listening experience. I, so, so in the end, I had to juggle that and just sort of say, um, you know, I wanted the people who whose arrangements I were using, I was using, I wanted them to get their royalties paid. You know, traditional musicians are not wealthy people by any means, so any little dribble that they can get is is welcome. Um, and I just sort of had to weigh it up and think, well, if people are interested in it, then it's a click away, you know, it just means that they have to leave their, their desired app and go and listen to it somewhere else. But it yeah. does stop the, it does stop the sort of digital footfall of people who are just browsing through Spotify, coming across something that they might find interesting. Yeah. And so to finish, the reason I could use your Wassel song was because you had recorded yourself and you personally gave me permission. So will you give me permission to play it out now? <laughs> of course of course i mean that, like i'm not signed to any record label so that's you know it's that, that that piece of music is a traditional song that you know essentially i hold the rights for the arrangement and the recording do what you like with it tell us a little bit about it but the wassling song is um as i say it's uh, it's it dates back some time it's tr related to the tradition of wassling which is um as you've if you recorded in in your recent podcast is the tradition of uh, sort of essentially blessing trees and blessing apple trees and and hoping for a uh, a bountiful harvest um I spoke in the dark somebody, days of midwinter in the dark days of midwinter although i did speak to somebody yesterday who had planted their apple tree and was was busy wassling it only yesterday so <laughs> i think wassling can be done at any time of the year but it was traditionally done in the early dark months and that's partly because you know i think it's it was a time to put lights and candles in the tree and bless the tree in that way and essentially you're you're you know while it's not directly related to christmas trees you can see that there's a there's a, a clear link there in terms of people wanting light and happiness and camaraderie during the dark months and carol uh, singing i love the, the link to yeah. carol singing 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that idea that, you know, people would get together and sing around the songs and then potentially go singing around the town and uh, um, go a wassailing. So uh, it became once you went back into town after wassailing your tree, after pouring cider on your tree and lighting, putting a few lights in the tree and that kind of thing, you might go back into the town and you might knock on people's doors and and say, here we come a wassailing um, and, and request something, uh, essentially... Um, yeah, it could be money, it could be drink. It's it's almost like a sort of Christmassy trick-or-treat kind of thing. Um, mm. And it's, you know, th- these kind of things fascinate me and, and excite me because I kind of, I love the fact actually this year, just after the, after you and I had recorded the last podcast, I was travelling through the through the West Country, uh, down um, not, not far from Exeter, and um, I saw a lot of signs for people uh, for for wassailing, for people inviting others to go a wassailing, and it just kind of gave me this little buzz on this excitement that people might be finding some interest in that uh, again. And there are so many of these amazing traditions around the country that people just don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. That uh, as soon as you start getting involved in them and start looking at them, not only are they fascinating, they're extremely um, soul nourishing. I think. You know, you you end up kind of feeling really connected to to people, to to your past, um, and and I think in a day where in in a, in these modern times where you know, well, let's not even mention coronavirus, but but certainly in in these modern times when people are so sort of uh, divided by digital devices and sort of separated by being kind of kind of uh, caught in their in their phone screens and. Um, and that kind of thing. I just think it's just so lovely to, to get involved in these traditions and, and sing these songs and uh, just find out, you know, find those little bridges of time that take, that, that take you back to what your ancestors would have done. The Wassling Song is that. So I recorded the Wassling Song a few years ago with a, with a little band I was playing in called the Grizzly Folk. Uh, we changed the lyrics a little bit to suit the people that were around us. Um, there are sets of lyrics that people will sing. That that particular version of the Wassailing song is tradition is properly known, officially known as the Gloucestershire Wassail, the Gloucestershire Wassail, and so people in Gloucestershire will have a set of lyrics that they specifically sing every year. But you can essentially sing what you like. It's it's about, as I say, camaraderie and about uh, enjoying one another's company. So we recorded a version of that. Every Christmas, it's our little hit. It kind of rockets up and gets thousands upon thousands of listens and then disappears again um on what that that would be on on you'll find it on spotify you'll find you see it on apple you know we i get emails every christmas sort of saying this has jumped to the top of such and such a chart so uh, it's uh, it's like it must be being like a sort of traditional version of slade Thanks for listening to How to Grow a Pod. You can buy the book How to Start and Grow a Podcast by me, Julie Smith, at any bookshop or go to juliesmith.com and click on the bookshop tab. And I'll be back next week with the ultimate pioneer in podcasting and master of storytelling. I give you Ira Glass of this American life. And here's to young David and to his right cheek. May God bring our David a rough piece of meat and a rough piece of meat that we may all see with a wassailing bowl we'll drink to thee Wassail, wassail all over the town our toast it is white and our ale it is brown and our bowl it is made from a white maple tree with a wassailing bowl